All right. Hey, go ahead and grab your Bibles and make your way to Deuteronomy 17. If you need a Bible, there's some there on the chairs there around you, page 125 or 161 if the Bible has a flame. While you're doing that, um, at the end of our service, we will have some prayer team members available up in the front. Um, all week long, I've, I've really been focused on praying for long COVID symptoms. And so if that's something you're dealing with, um, and you would like some more focused or intentional prayer on long COVID or something left over because of COVID, we'll have some prayer team members available to pray with you about that. Or if there's anything else that you want prayer for specifically, they're going to be available at the end of our service. All right. Deuteronomy chapter 17, we're going to be in verse 14 as we're making our way through Deuteronomy. Um, we're, we're scheduled to um, finish in the fall, mid-fall, kind of October-ish or so uh, as, we, as we keep working our way through it. Now, as we jump into this part, I want to just do a quick reminder of what Moses is doing. Moses is talking to a group of people, and he's given sermons, right? And so a lot of what we experience as Moses is, is, is speaking in Deuteronomy is he's actually speaking these things. They are sermons. So there might be some summary there might be some details left out because we've already got Leviticus, and Leviticus has much of the detail, right? And so he's, he's telling this new generation of people who has watched their previous, uh, their, their previous generation, their moms, dads, grandparents who were alive, they've watched them all die off in the wilderness because of disobedience, right? Not trusting the Lord. They violated the covenant of God. And so here they stand getting ready to go into the land that God had promised that he had given to Abraham several centuries before. And Moses is telling the people, this is who your God is. This is who Yahweh is. This is how he has delivered you from slavery in Egypt. This is how you live in the context of a relationship with a holy God. That's important. That's grace. It's grace because God is revealing through the, the, the law, through the Torah, God is revealing who he is, what he's done for his people, and how his people can rightly and safely and appropriately live in his presence. If God did not give him the things that we're learning about in Deuteronomy, he would be cruel. He would be a God who is simply waiting for you to mess up so that he can smite you. But because God has revealed himself in the law, in the Torah, through the instruction that we have here in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus, in Exodus, Numbers, Genesis, all the things that Moses has written, God has revealed himself so his people might know him. Because God is a God who wants to be known by his people. He's not distant. Hey, so Moses is now helping the people understand. This is what God requires of you. This is how you live and you thrive, how you continue to experience the blessing of God in the land when you get there. Okay, so he's helping them understand. You don't do these things, you do these things. You're gonna see other people doing these things. You don't do it, you live this way. And it's no different when it comes to how the people of God are being led. And in my email last night, or yeah, I sent it Friday this week because I was ahead of the game this week, but I sent it on Friday and I asked in the email, do you think God cares about the type of person who leads his people? Of course, right? It was just a primer. It's just a primer. 
Do you think God has specific requirements for the type of person or people that lead his people? Yes. Do you think God cares how his leaders of his people live their lives? Yes. That's what we're going to see in Deuteronomy chapter 17 this morning. Is God instructing the people through Moses? If there comes a point in your future where you want a king, here's how that goes down. Okay? So let's take a look. Here's where we're going this morning. Leaders of God's people must be lovers of God and of his law. Leaders of God's people must be lovers of God and of his law. I'm I'm saying law here because of our context. I could have put Torah, but I feel like that would have been lost on on many people. Um, But just when I say law, what I want you to understand is I don't just mean the first five books of the Bible, because as we see God continue to reveal himself through the rest of scriptures, it includes much more. It's God's instruction, okay? So don't get hung up on the word law and think rules and regulations, because as we've talked before, the Torah is not just rules and regulations. It is instruction, and it is, it is undergirded by the grace of God as he reveals himself, and he reveals how his people are supposed to live. But in our context this morning, the scriptures, it's very, very oriented towards the law, the first five books, or really even just Deuteronomy. So leaders of God's people must be lovers of God and of his law. By the way, there's no other place in the, the, the first five books, what we would either call on a limited way, the Torah, or in Greek, the Pentateuch, um, the books written by Moses. There's no other place in there that gives instruction for a king of the people of Israel, except for this place. Okay, and then we're gonna look at, we're gonna look at another place where this actually plays out. All right, leaders of God's people must be lovers of God and of his law. So then what does that look like? And the first thing we're going to see is you do this by keeping themselves, God, leaders of God's people do this by keeping themselves from turning away in their heart. Now, before I go any further, and I'm going to give you time to write that down if you want to. Before I go any further, don't check out because you go, I'm not a leader. Don't check out. Because one... We're going to be talking about leaders of God's people as we broaden the application. If you attend a church, if you attend a church, you you sit under the leaders of God's people. If you belong to any kind of Christian organization, you sit under the leadership of someone who's leading God's people. If if you if you um, are are any of those situations, you also are someone who can benefit, even if you're not a leader, from some of the things that are being said here. Because what God requires of people who lead His people does not exempt everyone else from those requirements, right? So God may say, "Here's the standard for somebody who leads My people." This is both Old and New Testament, because we could take it to the New Testament where He gives requirements for elders of the church, First Timothy three, Titus one, or deacons, First Timothy three, right? But, but we would look at those requirements and, and none of us would say, well, it's okay um, if you're not a deacon for you to go get drunk. No, right? We, we would say that the standard is don't get drunk with wine, right? But be filled with the spirit. So there are principles here that even though you might not find yourself in a leadership position that you can still benefit for, from because God can use them to say, but this in your life, but this in your life. And who's to say one day you might not be a leader of God's people? Who's to say one day you might not be in a position where God puts you, where you have now influence and leadership over the people of God? One of the ways we do this is by keeping themselves from turning away in their heart. And so here's Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. When you come to the land 
that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Okay, so the, the people of God, they, they've been wandering around now for some, some about 40 years or so. They've never had a king. They have a leader in Moses, a priest in Aaron and his sons, but they don't have a centralized government in, in a king. They don't have a monarchy. And up to this point, they've, they've not needed one nor wanted one because God is their king. Yahweh is their king. It's called a theocracy. We are not under a theocracy today. America is not a theocracy. There, there is no country currently operating under a theocracy, okay? Not, not of Yahweh, okay? But a theocracy is where the God that you worship directly rules over you. Okay? Now, you may have a king, a human king, and that king becomes the representative of your God. Okay? So in a sense, all the nations who had kings, and they believed that their king was a god and a representative of their god, in a sense, they were, they were being ruled over by other gods. But so far up to this point, the, the people of Israel, they've not had any person sitting on a throne. They've had a prophet in Moses, a mediator of a covenant, and Moses, priest and Aaron and his sons, and God has led them directly, pillar by uh, fire by uh, night and a cloud by day. And then when it picks up, you move. He's spoken directly to Moses. At one point, he was speaking directly to the people from the mountain. They said, That's, we don't want that anymore, Moses. You go talk to him, and then you tell us what he said. But he's a God who speaks to his people. He rules directly over his people. Okay? When the people of Israel are going to get into the land... Moses knows there's going to come a day they're going to be surrounded by all these other nations. They're going to be spread out all across this, this country, this area of land. And there's going to come a point where they're probably going to long for a king like the other nations. Okay? So when you say, when you're in the land, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around you. Now, I don't want you here to read too much into this one, like all the nations around you, because it's not there. There's no tone there, whether in the Hebrew or the English. It's just simply a statement of comparison. When, when, when you get there and you say, I want a king over me like all the nations around me, because it's neither a positive nor a negative statement. It's just a statement. There's going to be a day you're going to want a king, and you're going to say, we want a king like the other nations. So, so here in Deuteronomy, don't, don't read into that, oh, they want to be like the other nations, as in like they want to. Now that's coming, but that's not here. Because you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. There's, there's permission granted. Whether it's permission or concession, we don't know, but, but, but there's at least already here, before there's a king in Israel, God already paved the way and said, there's gonna come a day you're gonna want a king. When you say, I want a king like all the other nations, you may indeed set a king, but here's the parameters. It's gonna be one whom Yahweh your God chooses. Okay? It's not gonna be one you choose, or it should not be one you choose. He, because he rules over his people, he will be the one who picks his king, okay? 
And we keep going. More requirements for this king. He needs to be someone from among your brothers. He needs to be a Jew. He needs to be from the people of Israel, one of the 12 tribes. You will not have a foreigner, he says, ruling over you. You cannot go to these other nations and pick someone from these other nations, no matter how great of a warrior they are, no matter how great of a, a spiritist or a priest they might be, you may not pick anyone else to rule over you. It's someone the Lord your God will pick, and he must be from among one of the 12 tribes. Okay? No foreigner. Why, by the way? Because if a foreigner's ruling over the people of Israel, that's judgment. That's judgment. Because God will tell his people, if they don't obey the covenant in the land, he will then bring people from other nations to rule over him. And as long as there is a person from the tribes of, of Israel on the throne, at least in that sense, there's no judgment. Now, they had some pretty bad kings, and there's some judgment that came because of that. But if they have a, a foreigner, a non-Jewish person ruling over, over them, that's judgment. Okay. We keep going. Speaking about this king, when, when you do have this king, he must not acquire horses. Horses um, were primarily used for pulling chariots in warfare. And so the idea here is, is you shall not amass an army. Not that you can't have an army, but you should not build one up um, uh, excessively so. Okay? Why? Because some fight with horses, some with chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 20 right? The people of God, are, their battles are fought by the Lord. You amass an army, you start to put your, your trust and your dependence upon humanity's strength and warfare skill, right? Think about the story of Gideon in the book of Judges, how God whittled down his army just so that it would be absolutely clear God gets the glory, right? So it's not, not about um, just he loves horses and he wants to collect them. It's about not building up your army. And specifically so, you don't go back to Egypt to get those horses because at the time, Egypt was well known for the way they bred their horses, especially for warfare. And so if you wanted the best of the horses for your, for your chariots, you would go to Egypt to get your horses. And Yahweh says, no, not for my people, not my king. He does not amass horses and he certainly doesn't go back to Egypt because I swore that you would not go back to Egypt. Not acquire many wives. Um, this is not, um, this is not, I'm scanning the room. This is not about an addiction. This is not about an excessive desire for multiple women. It certainly can include that, but that's not really what's going on here. When you were a king and you married, oftentimes those marriages became links between you and another nation. They were pacts, they were treaties, they were peace treaties, wartime treaties, that if, we're, if we get attacked, we, we come together. And so oftentimes one king of one nation uh, would give his daughter to the, to the son uh, of a king in another nation, and there would be a treaty formed. Or if you're a king, then you would, you would marry this, this king's daughter from this other nation, and therefore now you're in a treaty with that nation, right? That's the greater concern here, is that forming pacts, forming alliances with these other nations who worship other gods. Because, he says, not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. The issue is not so much like, I'm so love-struck that this, this one particular woman is going to pull me away, though it certainly can happen. So, I didn't plan on this not singling anyone out. If you're dating, if you're thinking about dating, if you one day hope to date, 
you should give thought to this. That missionary dating is not a good idea, okay? You, 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 you might think in your zeal for the Lord and your infatuation, maybe even love, that I can win him or her over. I'm stronger in my faith, and the closer I can get to them, the more conversations I can have, the more than I can win them to the Lord, and this could be like a win-win, right? No, no. Same with marriages, You might think that I'm going to marry this person and they're not a believer now. You need to walk away from that or you put the brakes on that real quick. And you keep praying for that person and you keep interacting with that person, pointing them to the Lord, but you put the brakes on that wedding and that marriage quick because you get yourself in a marriage with someone who's not like-minded, who doesn't love the Lord. Hey, they may or may not come to the Lord, but you will ultimately pay a cost. And you've got to make that decision before you get in a spot where you can't turn back, okay? Because this kind of relationship, romantic types of relationships, do have a power over us because we are frail. We are weak. And we are made by God to love and love deeply and to be known and to be known deeply and to live in the context of a companionship. We're made for that. But those things, if not grounded and if we're not on the same page, whether dating, whether, whether in, in marriage or not, those things, what more often than not happens is the person who has not loved the Lord ends up affecting more the person who does love. Okay? Not that you can't, if you're in a marriage or a relationship where you're the believer and, and the spouse is not, it's not that you can't have a thriving relationship with the Lord. You absolutely can. There are people in this congregation who have for decades. but you're having to face some challenges and some struggles that maybe you chose, maybe you didn't cho- choose, maybe you knew, maybe you didn't know, okay? So count the cost early, okay? Amen. All right. Not acquire many wives for lest his heart turn away. So what the greater concern here is toward other gods, nor shall he acquire for himself an excessive amount of silver and gold. It's not that he can't have silver and gold, but the, the thing about silver and gold wealth is as a leader starts to build wealth, that wealth starts to separate him from the people he is entrusted to lead, right? So you get an excessive amount of silver and gold and, and you now have a, have a level of living and, and, a, and a level of, of things that you desire that far surpasses that of the people and maybe even that silver and gold has been earned on the back, earned, not a great word, stolen on the back of those people, Right? You start to damage the people you lead. You start to build a schism between the people you lead. Not that you can't be wealthy. Wealthy is a good thing if the Lord's given it to you and you're using it to bring glory to the Lord. But the caution here is the king who is amassing wealth uh, for himself because it's a status symbol, power, pride, right? Because that will divide you from the people that you're entrusted to lead. Okay, so these are the things you should not amass. These are the kinds of things that would take a king of Israel and would turn his heart away from Yahweh, his God. So leaders of God's people must be people who love God and love his law. Here's what it looks like to help protect yourself from, from being led away. Okay, but the next thing we're going to look at in the, in the next paragraph, oh, oh, oh hold on, sorry. Um, just for, for fast-forwarding history, Here's what happened when they finally got a king. This is two verses describing David, 2 Samuel chapter 2. David went up there and, he, and his two wives, at least in 
this moment in time, he had two. Um, by the way, he had already had one, uh, Michael, which was Saul's daughter, but at this point, Saul had already taken Michael back and given her to someone else. So he's got two at the moment, but he had already had one. David went up there and his two wives, also Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Okay? But look, by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 5, we get more information, and David took more concubines. Concubines would be um, not your wife, but a woman who you have on the side. So if you were marrying for um, alliances or purposes like that, you would then have a harem. And you may or may not do anything with that harem. The harem would certainly include family, kids, and things like that. So you might have um, a woman one time a year, and she's in your harem, and you have kids from that woman. But she may not be your primary one. Right? That, that this is how some of the kings would operate. And so this is where David ended up. He had concubines. They're not, they're not technical marriages, but they're people, women that he has as part of his harem. So he has more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. So you see, it, it, it didn't take long, even for David, the man after God's own heart. But his son, it was even worse, Solomon. Here's Solomon, 1 Kings 4. Remember the whole list we had, horses? Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. I mean, I don't know what the acceptable number would be, but the point that the, the author of Kings is pointing out is he was amassing horses, which he was not supposed to do. Furthermore, we get to 1 Kings 10, and Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Ku, and the king's traders received from them from Ku at a price. Where were they not supposed to get horses? Egypt. Lastly, on Solomon, 1 Kings 11, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. This is not a statement of approval, by the way. It's just a statement of fact, okay? There are things that are in the scripture that just because they're in scripture does not mean God approves or endorses of them. They're describing what was taking place, okay? And we read them as such. So no one should walk away from here going, well, it was okay for Solomon. It's okay for me. It's not. It's not, Okay? 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. What was the concern about having multiple wives? Turning your heart. His wives turned his, away his heart, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. Little g. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. The Shema in Deuteronomy 6.5, we read this, uh, 6.4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. That is holy, holy, like W-H, holy, loving God. And what happened was Solomon was not in that place anymore. His, um, as he, he was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. Okay, so you see this happen, right? This is why uh, God was giving these concerns through Moses. All right, here's the other thing leaders can do by knowing and doing God's law. How do I, how do I as a leader of God's people, and in, in the king's case here, how does the king, how does he love God and love his law? How does he lead the way Yahweh, his God, wants him to lead? Okay, so we just saw things to protect against so that you don't have your heart turned away. Here's a positive standpoint. Look with me at verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom... He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all that read in it all the days of his life, 
that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So once the king assumes the throne, he is to write for himself his own copy of the law. Now the question is, what, what's included in that? It, is it just Deuteronomy? That seems to be the, the more prevailing viewpoint, just maybe Deuteronomy. But does that include then maybe all of the Torah? That's also a possibility. But he's to write his own copy of it. And it needs to be approved by the priests. As he's writing this law, it's approved by the priests. In other words, things don't get changed, things don't get adjusted, as kings might be tempted to do to justify behavior, choices, or things they want to do. You write a copy, he says, of this law. Now, that would maybe, the temptation would be, okay, he wrote his copy of the law, and there it sat on the dining room table as a great decoration for decades to come. That could become it. Well, there's my copy of the law. I did what I was supposed to do. I wrote the law. See, but Moses goes further. It's not just that you write your own copy. It's verse 19. It shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life. He needs to know it. He needs to know it. He needs to be in it, reading it, knowing it all the days of his life. That's a, an exclusive intense type of relationship with the Torah, with the law. That's not a call you when I'm interested, call you when I need something. It's not that kind of, I'm, I'm not trying to be on relationships today, but here I am. Okay? But it's to be in it. He's to be in it. He's to read it all the days of his life. And then look at this. It shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life. And then the rest of these verses are connected by the word that or so that. In other words, and these are the results. He's to, be in, he's to write his own copy and he's to read in it and be in it all the days of his life. And here's the results. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping the words of this law and these statutes. It's not enough to know it. He must do it. And in knowing the law of God and in doing the law of that God, a fear of God is cultivated. But for someone who doesn't know the law of God, doesn't do the law of God, there is no fear of God. And if you're a king of Israel, you're a leader of God's people, you are placing yourself under the one true king, Yahweh, your God. As you read his law, his, his Torah, which has been given to you. Right? And so as you read in it, you are taking instructions and you are aligning your life with his commandments, not your own. Right? So there is a fear of God that's being cultivated because also then as you read this law, you start to read that these are the consequences of those who break the covenant with God. And as a leader of God's people, if you lead God's people to break the covenant of God, you are culpable on a higher level. Right? So there's a fear of God that is cultivated. Now, when I hear fear, we soften that a whole lot, and we always just say it's respect, because God, God's like a, a big daddy that doesn't want to be feared. No. To his children, God is a loving father, absolutely, and yet he is still God, the creator of the universe. We absolutely must respect and revere him, but there is a healthy place for fear of God. When I know God, I understand his power. When I know God, I understand the weight of his glory. 
And I understand that his way is the only way to live my life. His ways lead to life. To oppose his ways lead to death. When I understand who God is, there's a healthy fear that if I violate the glory of God, I am committing a high offense against the king of heaven. It's treason. And any earthly kingdom, when treason is committed, it's death. And the same is true when we violate the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. And that's what every one of us because we have violated the glory of God. Paul says in Romans 3.23, there's nobody who's exempt. Nobody. Because all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, what God has done for us in Christ is he has taken the just wrath that he has toward our sin and he's put it on his son so that his son takes the judgment for us for our sin, so that I am spared from the wrath. I come out from the wrath. I'm taken out of the domain of darkness, which is ruled over by the ruler of this world, Satan, and I'm transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what God has done for us. And now I can call him father. I can relate to him as father, and a loving father he is, but he never stops being the God who created all of the universe, who is omnipotent, all power is his. He sits enthroned upon the heavens, and he does as he pleases, is what the Psalms say. So there's appropriate place for healthy fear of God. And when I fear God, whether as an individual or when leaders of God's people fear God, then they're placing themselves under God's ways. And they're aligning themselves with God's ways instead of expecting God to align with theirs. Okay. He may learn to fear the Lord. Verse 20, another result of being in it and reading it all the days of his life, verse 20, his heart may not be lifted up above his brother, humility. Because if I'm in a position like the king is, or I'm in an elevated leadership type of position, it's easy to become arrogant. It's easy to become prideful. You look at all the power, if you're a king, imagine that. You look at all the power and the influence that you have over these people. They'll do whatever you say they need to do, because if you don't, they don't, they know you have the authority to do something to them. You can lead them to whatever you want to lead them, even if it's against the Lord, because it will gratify you and they will follow out of fear of you. There's pride and arrogance that can set in. And so what Moses instructs is that you need to be in the law. It needs to be in you and you need to do it so that you don't elevate yourself over your brothers, over the very people that you're supposed to lead. Humility is a result of being, knowing, uh, loving God and, and, and loving his law. And then lastly, um, so that he may continue long in his kingdom. You want to continue in leadership? The king who, who is going to align himself with Yahweh, who is going to place himself under the law, his kingdom would last long. But the one who would rebel against Yahweh, their God, who would not align themselves with the, the, the Torah, their kingdom would be taken from them. All right. I believe I have this up here. Yep. First Samuel chapter 8. This is where we come to a point in Israel's history where they finally ask for a king. They've lived under Moses. They lived under Joshua. Joshua died. Then we see Samuel come in as one of the primary prophets leading the people. Samuel operated as both a prophet and a judge. And then as Samuel gets old, um, um, then we, we start to see um, them start to say, hey, 
We're ready for a king. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Same phrase, but look at the responses to that phrase. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. Here's God's perspective on their request at that time. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's negative. Okay? That's, not, that's not what God intended. They're not looking for a king now out of a positive good motive. They're looking for a king now because they're rejecting the king they have in Yahweh their God. And according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And then he goes on, and we've done sermons on this back in 2020. Uh, we did a sermon on this very passage. And so he's going to talk to him about how the king's going to take your women for his wives. He's going to take your men for his army. He's going to take your horses for his chariots. He's going to take the crops from you. He's going to tax you and burden you, right? It's a, it's a negative thing. And that's what happened to him. So that's where Israel asked for a king. That's where we see they, they violated um, God's glory and they sought to be like all the other nations. Now, I want to just give you something. We did this when we were walking through Romans 13. I'm just going to put it back before you one more time just for your thinking, maybe a thinking through your worldview on government, roles of government, things like that. I'm saying the state just to encapsulate all kinds of centralized government, okay? whether that's a monarch, whether that's whatever. Here's the track record of what the state looks like in scripture or what we might call government. Okay? First time we see it is in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 where God tells the people after they get off the ark with Noah, go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They're supposed to spread out. But what happens is Tower of Babel, they centralize themselves. They, they build a city, a polis, right? And the city has a ziggurat, a tower in it, and it's in the city where they rebel against God because there's nothing they can't do, right? It's a, it, the, the Tower of Babel is a rebellion against God in, in multiple levels, right? It, it is a re rejecting of God's commandments to go and fill the earth and, and to spread out, and it's a centralizing oneself so that we can do anything that we want to do. It's a negative situation. We get the backstory, the spiritual story behind the Tower of Babel in, Gen uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. So in the Tower of Babel in Genesis, we find out that God comes down and he scatters everyone and he confuses their language. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, we get the, the backstory and what we find out is that when God came down to scatter them, he scattered them and he divided them based on the number, it says in Deuteronomy 32, 8, according to the number of the sons of God. Now, if your translation doesn't say sons of God, look at the footnote because it'll be there. It'll either say sons of Israel or sons of God. Conversation for another day, or we've got sermons on this too. But according to the number of the sons of God, the sons of God would be spiritual beings who have rebelled against God. Genesis chapter six, we see a group of them. There are more than just those in Genesis chapter six. It's a category of spiritual being. They've rebelled against God. And what God does is he divides then the nations up according to the number of the sons of God. Okay? Psalm 82 picks up on this also because those sons of God in Psalm 82 get judged for the way they led the people. But it says in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, that except for the people of Israel, because it says he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God, but Israel, or Jacob, he inherited as a possession for himself. One nation, 
And of all that get divided up, one nation gets ruled directly by Yahweh. All the others are put under the, the rule and authority of other spiritual beings who are in rebellion against God. The goal of God in doing that was that through this people that were ruled by him, Israel, they were to be a light to the nations and a priest. They were to be a nation of priests so that through them, all the other nations who, who have been disinherited by God because of their rebellion would then be drawn back in. Okay? That's what's going on here in Genesis 11 as the people centralize themselves. And so then all these other nations, they're not ruled by Yahweh, they're ruled by these other gods, and therefore that's a rebellion against Yahweh. Okay? So every other nation, when they install a king, they believe their king is a god, is a deity, and they worship all these other gods. That's all rebellion against God. And then, of course, we see what happens to the people of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when they demand a king like the other nations, and it's ultimately a rejection of Israel. The track record's not good, Okay? What I'm not saying, okay, hear me clear, I'm not saying there are not good people who serve in government positions. I'm not saying that there are not things that governments do that lend to good results. I'm not saying that that's not the case. I'm just shaping our worldview to say, here's what it looks like in the scriptures when people centralize something and they, they, they call it a government or state or whatever it is, it's not long if it starts out good. It's not long before it becomes rebellion against God. And that shouldn't surprise any one of us because every government, every monarch, every rulership of any kind is made up of people who are still impacted by sin. And sinners are gonna sin. And, and where you put sinners in a position of power and influence, if they don't align themselves with the Lord and his ways, they're going to align themselves with somebody or something. And that's what's been happening for centuries, and it should be no surprise to us, and it should not take away our hope. Should not. When we watch our government start to crumble, which has been hap happening for decades, we should not be surprised by this. When we see other nations crumble because they have corrupt leadership, we should not be surprised by this, nor should we lose hope. Why? Because there is a king. There is a king of kings and a lord of lords. Right? And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Right? That's the track record. Leaders of God's people must be lovers of God and of his law. And so as I wrap this up again, I don't want you to check out if you're not a leader because there's things here. Is it, is it good for every believer in Christ to align themselves with God's word and God's law? Yes. Is it good for us to cultivate a healthy fear of God? Yes. Is it good for me, for me to, to not amass wealth and let that lead me away or not amass romantic relationships that lead me away? Absolutely. Every one of you can agree with me. Those are good things whether you're in a leadership position or not. What it says to me as a leader, though, what it says to me as a leader is I must, I must put myself under God's word. I must. If you're a person attending a church and you want to know what kind of church you should go to, you need to make sure the leader or leaders put themselves under God's word. And when there's a conflict in God's word and the way that the church is going, God's word must win over or you should leave. Okay? As a leader, I read that and I say, how do I lead if I don't have a fear of the Lord? As a leader, I read that and I say, how do I lead if I'm not humble? 
how do I lead if, if I'm not aligning myself with the law of God? And so I am, as a leader, convicted that I must stay under the word of God. I must cultivate a love for God and a love for his law. And if I don't, I can't lead. If I don't, I can't lead. Because what will happen is I'll look like every other leader. And this is true of any leader. If we don't, we will look like every other leader where we take our position and our, our influence and we use it to manipulate you to gain advantage for me. That's not what we're called to. Right? So I don't know how it's hitting you, but Holy Spirit, come and take your word and apply it to our hearts and give us understanding deeper than what our minds can grasp on their own. Help us to understand your, your, your word. There, there are wonderful things. Help us to behold wonderful things in your law. Show us what it looks like for each one of us. Show us what it looks like for those in, of us who are in leadership positions. How do we, how do we lead? What, are we, what does it look like? And for those that you're raising up one day who are in this room or under the sound of my voice, who you're raising up one day to be a leader of God's people, in some capacity, God, show them what you need to do with them now. Show them the work that needs to be done in their heart and in their lives. Show them the path that leads to life. As the psalmist said, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Um, I'm going to dismiss us in just a minute, but I want to throw out that quick reminder. Um, if you're part of the prayer team, if you're available, you'd like to pray for some folks, come make your way up here in just a moment when I dismiss on either side of me. And uh, specifically, again, if you've got long COVID, something lingering from COVID, and you'd like some more focused prayer on that or anything else, anything else, these folks will be available to pray for, for you. So now as we depart from here, let us be a people, God, who are marked by your word who are marked by a love for who you are, a love for your word, and that that might then overflow in us, that others might not be drawn to us, but be drawn to you. So let it be in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you guys next week.